So how about this for a shameless plug? You ready? Yeah. We've got a book coming out. That's right. We do. We have a book coming out. It is called Dark Heart, A True Story of Sex, Manipulation, and Murder. By Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie. Now, you can't buy it yet. No, but... You can pre-order it from your favorite bookseller, or even better yet, you can pre-order it through the books page at CrimeWritersOn.com. Or that Amazon link at CrimeWritersOn.com. Same thing, Rebecca. (laughs) It goes to the same place, right? The new book is called Dark Heart. It is, fair warning, a pretty dark book. Maybe if your mom is in your book club, you don't want to make it that month's selection when it comes out in March. Yeah, this this is probably something we will not be talking about because it's so explicit. We won't be talking about this on the podcast. And definitely not with our parents. Not with our... Oh, God. Or our kids. Your mother wants us to come for the club. You know that, right? Yeah, we're not doing that. (sighs) Anyway, if you want to read our book podcast, listeners, it comes out on March 1st, but you can pre-order it now. It is called Dark Heart, A True Story of Sex, Manipulation, and Murder by... Kevin Flynn. And... Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks. Thanks so much to everyone who's helped support this podcast. You can also lend a hand if you'd like by making a small donation at our website, crimewriterson.com. We've got links there to donate by PayPal and Stripe. And there's another big way you can help us out, of course, and that's by using our Amazon.com link to do all of your Amazon shopping. A tiny piece of your purchases goes to support this show. You can find our Amazon link right on our website, crimewriterson.com. As Amazon affiliate members, we can see the items that were purchased using our link. We can't see who bought them, in case you were worried about that. So bookmark that link and use it to buy stuff. And who knows, maybe what you buy will make Toby's special list of items that our listeners have purchased using that Amazon.com link. And speaking of that list... I think we should roll it. Canine semen collection kits for Al. Pack of 12 kits. Verback CET poultry toothpaste. Chalky talky wet wipe liquid chalk markers. Two pen bundle. One broad five millimeter and one fine three millimeter smudge-free tips. Not for use on school-type chalkboards. Jerry on Jerry, the unpublished Jerry Garcia interviews. Poo-pourri, before you go toilet spray, four milliliter travel size disposable spritzer. It stays body adhesive, Roll-on body adhesive, two ounces each. Wool dryer balls, six-pack XL. Handmade with premium 100% organic New Zealand wool with inspirational carrying bag and free sheep coin purse. Number one best, all. Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. 
Today, we'll be talking about Serial Season 2, Episode 6, 5 O'Clock Shadow. We'll also be talking about the updates in the Adnan Syed PCR hearing and everything we've been hearing from the courtroom down there in Baltimore. Joining me to do all of that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Thanks, Rebecca. And I, w- I want to start by thanking Sarah Caney for finding my uh, leopard skin uh, bathrobe. <laughs> and on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, and former defense investigator and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. Also joining us is noir novelist and perpetual negative Nelly, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello. So before we get started, we are in New Hampshire, and I think we just need to acknowledge what is happening around us right now. It is insane, the New Hampshire primary. And I'm just wondering, you know, I work in a newsroom. I hear great primary stories all the time. Do you guys have a great primary story from this primary or primaries past? What about you, Kevin? Uh, I remember chasing Governor Bill Clinton into the boys' room at Central High School in Manchester. (laughs) With a whole gaggle of people, and and the door closed, and we all stopped. At that point, we said, that's about as far as we're going to go. That was respectful. (laughs) It was a really respectful thing we did. Laura, what about you? Do you have any good primary stories? Well, today was a fantastic primary day story. We had no school today. It was a snow day here. So, you know, what do we do on a snow day? I took my nine-year-old son out to see Bernie Sanders. Um, He's a big Bernie fan. He was feeling the burn and he pushed all the uh, local prep school kids out of the way to get a front row spot. Apparently he was on NBC Nightly News tonight. But topping that, We got scooped ice cream by the Ben and Jerry afterwards. I have to say, your nine-year-old son pushing all the prep school kids out of the way, that's very Bernie Sanders. That's very, like... The 1% will not... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell you now, kids, the 1% of you prep school kids, they should be in the back. The rest of the 99%, you should come up front. (laughs) That's very, very good, Kevin. Very, very good. Kevin also likes to talk to our dogs as if he's Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. People don't walk the dogs. The dogs walk the people. (laughs) We used to have this uh, Newt Gingrich cat toy that had catnip in his groin. In the gr- oh, my God. <laughs> Can you still get that on Amazon? I don't, I, it's, it's probably really expensive on eBay. <laughs> they, they, had a, they had like three or four. Like you could probably get like a Dick Gebhardt one, too. A what? Okay. You Toby. mean Richard Gephardt. <laughs> there you go. Surely that can't be your best primary story. Have you ever run into a candidate in New Hampshire? I'm having an affair with Carly Fiorina. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, you, you run into candidates all the time. I actually, uh, so the, the Democratic debate last night was in Durham, which is my town, and it's about 100 yards from my office. Yeah, it was at the University of New Hampshire where you were. Yeah, Yeah. so there's like the free speech area, which is where you could sort of congregate with all the placards and stuff, and it was just all Bernie people. And so I kind of walked in there. We have this woman uh, visiting from Holland for a month, and she was like kind of interested to check it out. And I'm kind of looking around, and I just had this bad feeling. And I said, you know, if if they start chanting – I'm out of here. <laughs> you can just take a bus home. Yeah, it took about 30 seconds. And it was like, you know, just who wants burnout, Toby. That's what representative democracy? We want representative democracy. Oh. So. I uh, only have one quick story and that I have lots of stories from this primary that I'm not going to get into People right are, now. are flipping shit because we're not talking I'll about cereal. I'll way down. It All won't right. be so long. My only story from before my days working in a newsroom is that I once spent a half an hour standing on my front porch talking to a candidate that after our conversation, I was 100% sure he was the real deal. And that candidate was John Edwards. He wanted to talk to you for uh, a whole <laughs> 
whole half hour. He thought you were the real deal, too. Yeah, I huh? cringe looking back and thinking about that. Okay, so let's get down to it. Let's put the primary behind us. It's a few days away, and get out and vote, people. It's very important to do your civic duty and do that. We got a really a wonderful surprise this week when we woke up on Thursday morning, and there were not one, but two episodes of Serial in our feeds. Sarah Koenig announced that she would be reporting from Adnan Syed's PCR hearing this week with daily updates. Now, these updates are in the form of kind of casual recorded phone calls between Sarah and her producer, Dana, who, of course, we remember from The Crab Crib on uh, season one of Serial. First off, and I'd love to go to you first, Toby, what do you think of this format of the Sarah Dana phone call as her reporting from this PCR hearing? Like, What do you think of it? How does it sound? And what do you think of the information and just the format in general? It's weird. It's a little bit more like us, I guess, you know, that it seems like she's kind of giving her impressions of what went on and what she thought was kind of interesting and what she thought was kind of not interesting and what seemed to stick out to her and stuff like that. So... You know, I mean, I, I think it's fine. It's it's a uh, some of the stuff is that they've talked about has been pretty interesting, but it's not you know it's not serial the way we're used to it. What do you think, Laura? Um, it hasn't quite grown on me yet. It's it's okay. It, it did take me back a little bit when I first. I'm like, oh, they're just they're having a phone call, and I, I mean, maybe they're trying to make it seem a little bit more casual, but it makes it to me feel almost more staged because it's a phone call. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I I guess my bigger question, too, is, is it reporting? Because we're not getting the kind of detail from these phone calls between her and Dana that we're getting from even people on Twitter who are in a courtroom. No, it's not. I mean, mean, she's at a disadvantage because there's no cameras in that courtroom. So there's no audio recording. Right. There isn't any reporting being done. Surprisingly, Undisclosed has come back and is doing the same thing. And I think they are actually reporting. Now, again, it's it's. We know that the team from Undisclosed and has a point of view. They have a point of view, and that's fine. But I think they're actually we're actually getting more about what is happening inside versus just sort of Sarah's perception, which is still valuable. And we always said that Serial Season One was more about Sarah than it was about Adnan. But I don't know. I think that there's uh, you know if you're really interested in the high points and the low points of what's happening, I, I actually think the uh, the Undisclosed special episodes have more meat to them. Well, the undisclosed episodes are not everyone's cup of tea. And I know that they're not because I've, you know, I've been kind of watching what's happening on Twitter. What I'll say about them is they are not produced anything like the show undisclosed. I'm not involved in them at all, by the way. Full disclosure there. This is actually, they have a producer who's actually recording them and cutting them and putting them together in Baltimore, um, putting those little podcasts together for them. And I don't know. I really like the Colin portions of them a lot. Uh, what do you think, Toby? I know that you've been listening to those. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think the Colin parts have been have been pretty interesting. I think there's not a whole lot for Rabia to talk about because she's not in there. And then uh, Susan Simpson. You know, I I think she's obviously like so emotionally invested in what's going on that it really feels like you're you're listening to sort of a cheerleader for the defense mm-hmm. and uh she's talking really fast and excited and yeah yeah and then it's like you know how how the prosecutors he's not really that good but the defense you know he's really really laid back he's got such a great manner but at the same time he's really crafty and sly so 
it's fine and I think it's got more sort of specific information. But I think the the real value added is Colin sort of going through the legal issues in a, in a way that's pretty easy to understand. Now, Laura, we, we, Rabia is not on the courtroom, as we know, as we've heard, because she was sequestered because she could be a witness in the, in the hearing and she might get called to the stand. Whether or not she actually will is a matter of debate. I, I, I find it hard to believe the state would call her, thinking that she would be helpful to their case at all. But were you surprised to hear that she was sequestered from the courtroom? Have you ever heard of that happening before? Oh, yeah. I, I think we've talked about this because um, I was surprised in um, the Stephen Avery case that the detectives were not sequestered. You know, when I was a defense investigator, I was always sequestered if I was going to testify. And many times I sat out in the hallway for hours on end to never even end up testifying. So I wasn't surprised by that. I think anybody that's on the witness list, that's, you know, the typical protocol. Well, one of the really interesting ways to follow this, the, the courtroom developments, now there's no electronic devices at all out in the courtroom, but a few really good reporters are tweeting from the courthouse during breaks. They're basically taking a lot of notes, like Sarah said she's doing, but then they're actually translating their notes into some very, very detailed tweets. My favorite reporter that I'm following right now is Jessie Silva. She was a criminal law reporter. She's a lawyer. She works for Bloomberg, and her Twitter feed is very... I don't know, it's very colorful. It sort of reminds me of like if Sarah were actually producing uh, versions of her reactions to what's happening in the courtroom. That's what this Twitter feed reads like. like. Like she'll talk about what the people were wearing. You know, she'll do screenshots of the different documents that they are presenting in the courtroom. She will just sort of provide some of that rich detail. But I just want to like ask you about this, Kevin, because Twitter is post you being a reporter. You reported on a lot of trials. When you hear that I'm getting all my updates from Twitter and then I, you know, I read a Baltimore Sun article, but really I'm getting like a lot of this detail from it, these Twitter feeds. Oh, it, is it's that actually weird? very com- No, it's not weird. No, but is it weird to you as somebody who used to report it, sort of It was the first media? time I went to uh, a courthouse. I mean, been it isn't like it's not like I've been, you know, locked out <laughs> in the courthouse. <laughs> in a cave. Yeah, you know, it, <laughs> but um, you know, every state and sometimes every county has its own rules about uh, electronic devices, but laptops are so prevalent and cellular phones, so long as you're not using them as a camera and as long as they're silent. I know in New Hampshire that it's it's uh, it, it falls in line sort of with the same kind of broadcast rules. They don't care about Twitter feeds, uh, people live tweeting. I mean, that's how we heard most of the Boston Marathon bombing trial, which was in federal court, is from reporters live tweeting. So, no, that's actually a new, maybe not so new, but that that's the new paradigm for courtroom reporting when you cannot have a live feed coming out, is you can do it that way. So today was very interesting. I mean, this this is now the, today we had the third day of the hearing. We're recording this on Friday night. We now know it's going to be extended into Monday. Today on the stand, they put up a um, the defense investigator for the new defense team. We had competing cell experts, and there's some very interesting detail on the cell expert the defense put up basically said the way that the cell phone data was presented in the first trial just was bunk. And then um, the the state's cell phone expert was sort, sort of caught in a gotcha moment on the stand where he was forced to acknowledge that the original cell phone expert in the first trial has now said that he wouldn't have testified that way had he had this fax cover sheet. Lots of big moments there. They had a former prosecutor talk about how Asia McLean would have been a game changer in the original trial. There's a lot going on, but really the star of this whole thing so far has been in Asia McLean. Now, McLean isn't her last name anymore, and she's actually on Twitter now, so we'll actually link to her Twitter feed and to the Twitter feeds of all these reporters I talked about on 
our website, crimewriterson.com. Let's just spend a second talking about Asia McLean. Sarah talked about her, and Sarah talked about how you know, she talked about how her appearance. She was very put together. Um, that she just seemed very, very solid. And I don't know how much of the case that you guys have been following in as much detail as I have, but Toby, I'd love to hear what you think of Asia McLean's testimony, what you've heard of it, and and whether or not you think that she really is the key piece to this whole puzzle and and could flip this whole thing and get it on a new trial or perhaps turn this whole thing over. Uh, Well, the first thing I'll say about it is that, like, I listened back to back to Sarah and then Susan Simpson describing her and and Sarah was like, you know, she seemed like very regal and poised and and just extremely impressive. And then uh, Susan Simpson described her as pregnant and nervous, but then said she was very sincere and genuine in her testimony. So I don't I'm not sure I have a full understanding of what she was talking about other than sort of the point that she had this information. She approached Yurik. Yurik said, I mean, I, I think everybody knows this, that he, he's clearly guilty. You just want to stay away from this. She said, OK, and then was surprised by the way he characterized their interaction later and only listening to Serial figured out how important it was. And she took notes during her phone conversation That's right. that she kept, which is incredible. And got a record to show that it wasn't a five minute phone call, it was a half an hour phone call. Right, right. And then she, you know, there was some stuff about a letter. Right. You know, there was there was some hinting that she had gotten sort of a, a, a handwritten letter from Adnan that she was supposed to type up and that she might have backdated in order to have it come at an earlier point. And there was some question about did she put things in that letter that she couldn't possibly have known, uh, which turned out not to be the case. This is probably just completely confusing to anybody who's no, actually no, listening. No, it's not confusing. I think that it, I think that we've been following it, and I think that kind of what the defense has said and what they've maybe even established at this point is that what those police notes were referring to when they had like sort of a handwritten letter, because it's based on a conversation with another kid, was that students were writing bail letters and they were asked to type them. And that perhaps what they were talking about is that somebody had sent a letter, a bail letter for a non to the wrong address. And that, that in these very, very convoluted notes, the state sort of pulled out a narrative, pointed at Asia McLean, which she it completely refutes. I mean, she is so sure of exactly what happened. She so sure, in fact, that she contradicted Rabia's story of how they met. And apparently uh, Rabia's brother said to Susan Simpson in the courtroom, no, she has it Asia's right. Asia's right. And, Asia's and right. Rabia's right not remembering this right. And today, actually, the defense star witness prosecutor, their expert witness, said that she is a like a diamond in the rough of a witness because she's so clearly had really a strong sense of detail in a way that was very, very believable. Kevin, do you want to say something? Yeah, one of the things that the prosecutor was trying to do on cross-examination is to raise uh, doubt in the judge's mind about how good of a, a witness that Asia would be. Would have been. Would have been. In 1999. Right, because you're trying to reach the you know the Strickland precedent saying that, you know, unconstitutionally uh, bad representation. Right. That the, Gutierrez didn't call her on purpose because right, it was a strategy. Right. And one of the things was, like Toby said, the letter and um, what he was trying to get at was look at some details here. Like, how would you have known that there were fibers and uh, this and details that came out later so they would have been backdated? Right. And uh, Brown, 
Justin Brown. Justin Brown pulled out a bunch of news, news articles yeah. at the time of the letter that showed exactly what you said. He said, you know, fibers and a, and, a, and a shallow grave. And actually, one telling one was a mistake that they both made, that in the letter, Asia said something about the car being found at Lincoln Park, which was not true. But one of the newspaper articles at that same time said the car was found in Lincoln Park. So, so that information, you could show that she actually was getting it from, from newspapers. Can I ask a quick question? Sure. Which, something I didn't quite understand was it sounded like one of the issues was that it's incumbent upon the defense attorneys to make contact with any alibi witness, whether they're going to call them or not. And there was a question as to whether Christina Gutierrez had made any contact with Asia, right? And right. it was so I guess my question was why is it important whether she would have been a good or bad witness? Doesn't just the fact that she wasn't contacted by the defense isn't that the sort of crux of the matter? I think what they're showing is both, that there was negligence. And Laura, you can chime in here because you yeah. work for that there was negligence on her part and that it wasn't strategy. Laura, do you want to weigh in yeah. on this? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, so one of the things um, that I heard, I can't remember which podcast it was that I was listening to, they were saying, oh, well, you know, they, they, they didn't believe her so the, or we didn't believe our clients, so we didn't contact somebody. And, you know, and I've said this before. You need to contact witnesses, especially alibi witnesses like this. You know, there's lots of times I didn't believe stories my clients told me, but I had to go out and contact those witnesses just the same. And that one time you don't go is the time you're going to be proven wrong. So, yeah, the issue is that they never even attempted to contact her. And she was doing all this work on her own. I mean, it sounds like she even called the library to inquire about the surveillance cameras. So, yeah, it's the issue of not contacting her. Um, and then, you know, the strategy thing is, you know, had they contact, they can't make their strategy before they've ruled out all these witnesses. I think that's the issue. Yeah, I think Colin actually said it best when he was looking at Maryland precedent, saying that you can't say that not using Asia was a strategic move if you never contacted her. Meaning, if you you can't just you have to have shown some evaluation of the witness to decide whether or not it's it's smart or a good strategy to use her or not. The fact that there was no contact shows that it couldn't have been a strategic decision because no discretion was given, no decision was made about it. One of the things that's been really, I think, satisfying from a storytelling point of view is that Asia's letter at the time, we were all listening to Serial Season 1, and the things she put in the letter and the way that she wrote the letter. Like the stinky feet and... Yeah, we yeah. all had so many, like... Um, we were all responding to that in a way that was like, you know, why would a teenager say this or why? And it, we were all sort of just speculating and, you know, sort of throwing our ideas in there. And then to hear the person herself explain every single line of that letter, why it read the way that it did, what she meant when she said, I could help you account for your time. What she meant was, if I tell you where you were at this point, maybe you'll remember what you did afterward. And it was all just very, very straight. And in a way, like, satisfying? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And she explained, like, why did you remember, you know, a month later that it was this day and it was Adnan in the library? And she said, she explained the, the train of thought, which was everybody was talking about the last time they saw Hay. She couldn't remember the last time she saw Hay, but she did remember the last time that she talked about it was with Adnan in the library that day. Right. She's trying to have an excuse to spend time with her boyfriend, and she knew that it was snowing out. If she stayed out, she'd be able to say that she was late because of the snow. Like It was very, very detailed and very interesting. But I actually have a larger question, and I want to see what you guys think about this, Toby and Laura. So 
The expert witness today, the former prosecutor, basically his testimony was very, very strong. He said, you know, not only was it negligent that Gutierrez didn't contact Asia and, you know, use her in the case because she would have been a game changer. But basically, her testimony could have changed the outcome of the trial, period. And he made no bones about it. But what I'm wondering is, with everything that we've heard about the way the state made its case and was flexible about its story, do you think that Asia's testimony would have made a difference then the way that it's making a difference now? I'd love to hear what you think about that, Laura. Yeah, I mean, I think it all depends on, you know, how the jury viewed her credibility. And if she is presenting as she is now, it sounds like she's very poised and she's coming across very clear and very clear about what happened when and how and where and everything. I think that that could have been a game changer because if you're looking at the witnesses, you're looking, okay, do I believe her or do I believe Jay? So I I think it could have had an impact. What do you think, Toby? Yeah. I mean, I, I think Laura's point is interesting. And I think there's, you know, there's probably quite a bit of difference between the way she testifies now and how she would have testified as a teenager at the time. So I I don't know. I don't have a very strong opinion about it, but it's an interesting thing to think about. I think that there is a bar that is set when you're talking about whether or not the witness would have had an impact. I I, I don't think the bar is set so high that the uh, the appellate the the appealing party Laura who's the, the they're the appellate what are you trying to say <laughs> who are the, who are the defense the defense is the appellant they're, are they the appellant yeah because they're the ones appealing the conviction the, am I right yes I, yeah yeah okay all right. well I'll use different okay. I can't believe you don't believe well, me no, I was actually re- <laughs> <laughs> what am I chopped liver uh, I have taken two college courses on constitutional law Kevin mm-hmm, I'm practically a lawyer you're practically a lawyer. <laughs> You're the grinder. Um, look, there is a there is a bar that has to be met as far as what kind of impact the eyewitness would have had on the jury. Somebody who just said, you know, I, I think I might have seen him that day probably doesn't rise to the level of this was a, a an unfair trial. His rights were violated. But I don't think the, the bar, as I'm trying to remember the defense motion for post-conviction relief, their argument was the precedent doesn't mean that you have to prove that it would have changed things, that this witness would have exonerated or found, done something, but that there was a likelihood that it would have changed. So part of what the state is trying to do is to try to minimize the impact of Asia's testimony, to say like, no, even if she'd been here, it wouldn't have made a difference. It would have would not have risen to the level where the outcome of the trial would have been affected. I'm not sure exactly where that bar is, and I'm sure the judge has a lot of discretion deciding that. Colin Miller could probably fill you in on that. Oh, man, yeah. (laughs) So I have two final thoughts, and I want to throw something out at you guys. One is we're all really excited about the Adnan Syed case again, which is very interesting. Remember last week when we were like, no, we're sick of this. No, we're we're, so not. Well, we're not. And also the Undisclosed team even told me that they were burnt out and talking about this case. And it's just it's really to see something happen is just so fascinating and so interesting. I guess what I kind of really want to get to and what I want to ask is that Sarah Koenig did get some blowback after season one of Serial about, you know, she did this deep dive reporting, but what did she actually do? Did she actually accomplish anything or discover anything or do anything besides just put this crime story out there and get millions of people fascinated? But now we have this post-conviction relief hearing, which you can draw a pretty straight line between the production of Serial and the fact that this is happening at all. So, Toby, do you think that Sarah deserves vindication for the haters who said that she did this story and actually didn't take it anywhere? 
Oh yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's probably beyond just this case. I mean, I think there's, you know, I think a thing came out recently that 148 people had been released from jail who were improperly convicted, and I think it it kind of puts that a little bit more on the map publicly. So, I mean, I think specifically, yes, this does, but I think the issues that she brought in front of a whole lot of people through Serial Season 1, I think this didn't even have to happen to vindicate the reporting that she did. What do you think, Laura? Do you think that the effect that Sarah had, is does it go beyond the fact that Adnan Syed is now in this post-conviction relief hearing because of what she was able to accomplish in the podcast? Yeah, I mean, I, I know, you know, we've talked about this interest that just seems to be snowballing among people in the country right now with wrongful convictions and with seeing things, you know, not as black and white, but as gray, and that people that are arrested might not always be guilty. So I don't know... Like, like which came first, whether, you know, her reporting on this just happened to come at a time when people were ready to hear that. But I think it's great. You know, we all know my background. So I think it's great that people are starting to see that there's a bigger picture to the criminal justice system. And uh, hopefully it continues. Final thoughts, Kevin, before we move on? Yes, Sarah does get a lot of credit, you know, but I think a lot of credit also goes to the undisclosed team. First of all, they raised an awful lot of money for this legal fund. But also the contribution of Susan Simpson and the cell phone evidence, I think that's actually the stronger argument than the ineffective counsel, although it does play to it. The whole fact that not only there's the Brady violation, which, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's uh, on purpose or not. That's clearly a Brady violation to a big piece of evidence. But the fact that you're able to undermine half of the state's case and there was no fry test, then it also shows speaks to Gutierrez's incompetence. I think that is the stronger argument. I think that the press that's covering this are missing that point. So yes, I you know get Sarah pushed the ball downfield into the red zone. And I think that you can give undisclosed the assist for handing it off and hopefully getting it across the goal line. To be fair though Undisclosed. Too many, too many football analogies. No. <laughs> well, no, to be fair, though, undisclosed is Robbie Achaudhry, and Robbie Achaudhry is the one who brought this to Sarah Koenig to begin with. Sure, yeah. So, you know, whatever you think about Adnan's guilt or innocence or whatever you think about the case, it, it is the tenaciousness of this person carrying around boxes of files in the trunk of her car for many years that is the reason this ball got rolling down the hill. Does anyone else think this was BS that she was sequestered and kicked out? No, I mean, it's protocol. Yeah, they're they're flexing their muscles. They, I mean, they can do it. I think it know? was a little bit of Theater? payback. No, a little bit. I mean, she, she caused them a lot of grief by getting the snowball going. Because they're not going to call her, are they? I don't know. Yeah, I just think it was dirty pool, but I don't know. Well, it's Baltimore. Is there any other kind of pool? <laughs> All right. So let's move on to the other episode of Serial that dropped in our feeds this week. And by the way, we shouldn't let it go unnoticed that they got sponsorship for both of those episodes that they dropped in. And today's and yesterday's. And we still don't have a sponsor. But anyway. Let's go daily shows Sour now. grapes. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so the other episode that we got delivered in our feeds, like a little gift on Christmas morning, was Five O'Clock Shadow, Serial Season 2, Episode 6. The Zoom Back In, as Sarah Koenig so eloquently put it, this one I'm assuming not recorded in a closet next to a leopard print bathrobe. She starts off the episode by talking about Bo Bergdahl's version of the story as to why it was that he walked off his base. And she says something very interesting. She says that 
Whether what Bo is saying is the truth or whether what there is truth and what Bo is saying are two different things. Kevin, what do you think she means by that? I, yeah, that was a great line. I mean, I think she's saying there there is the truth that you know and the truth that exists. So he's not lying, but what he may not be telling is what the, the facts actually are. The objective truth. Yeah, like in the 1300s, people who said the world were flat were not liars. You know, they were telling the truth, but there was no truth in what they were saying. It's not to say there's no truth in what Bo is saying, but I think as you start, as we, you kind of go through this one, this episode, and you get sort of his perspective on what was happening on the battlefield, you start to say that he's being truthful to what he believes. He's not telling a lie. But the possibility is that he's not actually seeing things as they are. Well, one of the things that we heard about is that Bo was a quintessential soldier, that if they were to pick a fantasy team of soldiers, that his platoon would have always chosen him Great first. graphic on the the, the the serial podcast website that shows the, the unit from down from the battalion level. And, and explains for, it all. Explains it all. You see how far down Bo Bergdahl was in this, this uh, uh, division of 4,000 soldiers. It's a great visual if you haven't seen it yet. So before we hear these other you know parts of his personality that Sarah throws into the mix, we first hear that he's meticulous, that he's what they call a PT stud, that he brings extra snacks for his platoon mates, that he actually read the Ranger handbook, which is something that nobody did. Toby, what did you think as you heard Sarah's describing Bo this way? This was the beginning of the episode before we heard, you know, his version of events, before we heard about their mission. What did you think about this description of him? You know, I think it's pretty consistent with other stuff we've heard in that he, I think he sees himself as sort of a super soldier, super competent, and and that's the way he kind of presents himself. And in that particular way, I think that's the way people perceived him. Laura, we also heard that when he arrived in Afghanistan that he didn't want to sleep on the bed, that he that he thought it was going to be ah. rougher than it was. So he took the mattress off the bed and slept just on the springs and that that was part of this like, we need to be full bore, do everything right kind of mentality. What did you think when you heard that detail? And the tomahawk. Yeah, <laughs> holding the tomahawk. You know, the whole, as they're describing him, I'm just... I, you know, I, of course, psychoanalyzing him here, my arm, I, there's something just a little bit off uh, as I'm listening to how he perceives things. He's like very literal with these very black and white, like this is the way it is when the other people are making jokes, he doesn't get the jokes. Something is a little bit off. That, that's what I took away from all of this. Well, it's funny you should mention that. We actually did get an email from a listener named Jennifer. I do know her name and I know who she is and she's legit. But she asked me not to use her last name, and I don't blame her. <laughs> um, but she posed this theory, and this was something I found myself thinking too, but may, may not have dared to say without receiving this email, to be fully honest. She felt that in the experiences in her life and her profession, she sort of perceived what she recognized as descriptions of somebody potentially on the autism spectrum, somebody perhaps that with Asperger's is exactly, syndrome. exactly, exactly what I was going to say, Rebecca, but I didn't want to say it. <laughs> I actually just made a note in red pen, Asperger's, because it's like... He doesn't get the jokes. He doesn't do the grab assery, is what, as the other soldiers so very literal. put it. Yeah, very literal. That, that's, I just made that note, but I didn't want to say it. 
<laughs> well, it is a tricky subject because I don't think it's something, obviously none of us is qualified to know through hearing somebody's description of somebody else, whether or not they fall on a particular spectrum or have a, a you know a particular disorder. But the thing that really stuck out to me was the one detail was the, the fellow soldier talking about wanting to go to Amsterdam and then Bo reciting back like the major exports of Amsterdam, like that, that being the response that was the first one that popped into his head. Well, I, I've been around some, some people that have that and it's like they're almost like reciting an encyclopedia to you but they don't have the two-way conversation that you would expect somebody to have. So they can recite a tremendous amount of information, which would make sense when you think about him memorizing this ranger book that he's reading and doing everything exactly as it was written down. It's like this ability to recall these minute specific details, but the social interaction is what we're hearing has been kind of off for him and people don't really get him socially. Like he's doing things that are just a little bit off. But he's got that tremendous recall with his memory, which is something that you hear a lot of people on the autism Asperger spectrum do have. One of the other details that I really appreciated, because I think that there's two ways this could have landed. And Toby, I'd love your thoughts on this, is that, you know, the story about him smoking a pipe. You know, initially I thought, oh, like hipster, just want to be cool (laughs) smoking a pipe. But then as it sort of played out, the whole pipe thing you really kind of realized that it was something different for him. Like he wanted to belong with those guys who were smoking. He understood it was a social ritual. He's also a PT stud and probably knows that smoking cigarettes is like real bad. So he sort of lands on the pipe. Toby, what did you take from the details like the pipe, like him listening to classical music instead of playing video games, like him, you know, knowing the exports of Amsterdam? Do you have any ideas about that? Well, I... You know, I hadn't really focused at all on the autism spectrum stuff. I mean, I, I've, I think I've talked about it a little bit before and sort of the more I uh, – we learn about him, the more I kind of feel like he had or I may still have like this, this sort of sense of the way things are supposed to be. Like he had the sense of what it was going to be like for him when he was in the army over in Afghanistan and there's a picture. I've seen it a bunch of places including The Guardian which is where it initially appeared where he's smoking the pipe and there are other people working around and he's kind of in this heroic profile. <laughs> and it, yeah, another you know, one, yeah. It, it looks like something out of Apocalypse Now. Right, and know? that's and that's the very photo that enraged right. this guy that as, we heard from in the episode. Should. Yeah. It, it's like he's like the unself-aware imperialist. I mean, that's that's what it looks like. And sleeping on the the bed springs without the mattress and a lot of and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute his reaction to when they see action and when they get disciplined and it's not i think how he envisioned things going right. uh, and how he envisioned that scenario playing out and i don't know if they talked about it in any of the podcasts but in that that really long newsweek article they talk about how he had these notebooks where he would write these stories about one hero against the world and the hero was always him so i i, I think that's all kind of plays into this this sort of mindset he had about things and I think some of a lot of the problems that he had were sort of the differences between what he felt he had a right to expect and what the reality was yeah so first of all great email Jennifer because this is a, a really great also got us out. off the hook for being the ones to throw that out there. <laughs> <laughs> well you know up until there's very little that we've heard in this season that is truly of Bo, in his own words, before his captivity. 
So everything that you say and his demeanor, it's always kind of been shaded with, okay, is there PTSD? Is he a lying, lying traitor who lies? We really don't have a lot of sort of, we have some anecdotes, but we really haven't sort of done the forensic psychology and leading up. Next week. That definitely sounds like that's next week's yeah. episode. And I just as we're we're talking about this, I wrote down one literary phrase here and Toby's gonna I think like this. Unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, we've seen a lot of stuff through Bo's eyes and Again, I just when we want to talk about like these two big incidents that he points to, his reactions to this are very telling. They are very telling. And one of the things that struck me, we'll talk about that mission gone wrong in just a minute. But his first frustration when he first gets there is there's no action, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of gets into the coin strategy, which we will also talk about. There's no action. There's no action. There's no action. I have a mattress. I don't want to sleep on a mattress. I want to sleep on bed springs. I want to be special forces. I want to be out there doing the things I thought that I'd be doing. But then when he does go out and do the things he thought he'd be doing, he's angry because he feels like he's being sent into a dangerous situation unnecessarily. Right, and paradoxically... He gets he's he's in the belly of the MRAP and he afterwards he's mad because he didn't get a chance to fight. He's a real paradox here because, you know, right, he is the PT stud, but he's also the one who's so insubordinate he'll walk away from his post to make his commanders look bad. So let's talk about that incident that um, his fellow soldiers really gave us. I have to say the voices in this podcast and, you know, hearing from people like Shane Cross and the soldiers who were there who can sort of really describe the action that the description of that commander getting out of the truck and like doing the tow line and saying, don't ever let me do that again. And then jumping out immediately and doing it again. I mean, it really was harrowing all for the sake of recovering equipment. And stuff and the truck, but even the description of these MRAPs and what they were made for and what they were like. And that soldier saying, you know, it was like being in a really nice Jeep with like leather seats. It was like real nice. It was really, really, really rich in detail. But it did really focus us as the audience on life on the ground and life on the ground as a soldier in Afghanistan and the kinds of things that we're asking these young men to do, like go on a mission for the sake of recovering a busted up truck. Toby, just focusing on that like specific mission and what it is that, you know, they were sent to do. What did you think when you heard that? Did that, you know, from your civilian point of view, seem like a very typical or did it seem sort of like what? I mean, I, th- I thought that piece of it was great for a bunch of different reasons. But one of the things is, it's like it ends up being kind of this epic story. But in reality, they go up a hill, stuff happens to them on the way up and they get stuck at the top and basically they can't really figure anything out. So they go back down again, get ambushed. So so it's this, this sort of epic story about actually accomplishing just about nothing. Right. Um, it, it was almost too metaphorical in some ways. But it I, I, thought, I thought it was really interesting and I think it seemed to me more what the kind of normal day-to-day existence probably is more like than these sort of grander things that you think about when you think about – Um, men at war or or people at war, I should say. Well, the title of the episode is Five O'Clock Shadow, and that is a reference to the soldier who talked about the fact that, you know, they couldn't shave. And that was like on his mind when they were trapped up there because he was thinking, like, are we going to get in trouble because we didn't shave, which was like very, very interesting. Um, Laura, what did you think of that peek into we got this very clear picture of them on top of this hill, stuck, you know, food being dropped, them all sleeping in the truck and that glimpse into the minds of the kinds of things that they're thinking about. 
Did you find that illuminating at all? I did. You know, and what I took from that part was I was just thinking to myself, was there not more of a plan or are these people supposed to be more self-sufficient in making decisions? I was just waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. And it seemed like nobody knew what was going on. They were sitting up there and they were sort of winging it. And that to me was troublesome. But I did love hearing the different voices of all the men that were there and the guy who was like, you know, and I said, let's do this. I really yeah. said that. Like, <laughs> that part was great. And, and some of them hearing their stories sort of backed up some of what Bo was saying as well. Uh, you know, they ultimately came to a different place with this than he did. But it sort of validated that some of the information that Bo was reporting back actually did happen that way. What did you think about that part of the episode, Kevin? This was a 15-minute segment of this podcast. This was one quarter of the podcast, and it was great. It was definitely some of the most fantastic storytelling that we've heard this season. And you're right, Laura, they, they just realized that they were like in the middle of so many cliches. And they were kind of, and when they look back at it, you know, they're kind of laughing about how cliche it was. Let's do this. Cover me. Very self-aware. Very self-aware. The guy who was uh, punching the other guy on the butt. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, my gun's jammed. Give me another gun. Give me another saw. No, that was a, give me another saw. Um, and uh, yeah, this was a really big piece and of the story. And yeah, you were there and you felt the danger and you felt you know, you know, the frustration that they're awaiting orders and nobody up the chain of command can figure out what to do with them because it's also important that these busted up, blown up trucks don't get left behind. And the trucks are in some ways more valuable than the pawns that are inside them. But then you finally get to the end of the story, which is the important part, which is that the lieutenant colonel greets them. The battalion commander greets them once they get inside the wire and gives them the grief about not having shade. And I asked a couple of, of veterans about, OK, so this was the situation and they, and they explained about regulations. And I, I, I told them, look, it was five days out there. They were pinned down. They finally come back. They got in trouble for not shaving. Is that like cool? That's right. Right. Like because they, they were kind of breaking regulations. And I was actually surprised because they said, like, no, that was that's not a good combat commander. Yeah, it's the regulations. You got to cut the guy some slack after what they've been through. So Bo and all the other guys were right. That was like a stupid, horrible thing to say. And arbitrary. Very arbitrary. And I think we want to talk about discipline a little later because it, it does go to that. But it was just the wrong thing to say. And Bo, who he didn't see, he heard it secondhand, that, took it detail. really personal. And then that the detail of the fact that he didn't hear it firsthand and yet took it so to heart was so... To me, that was striking because it was like he heard it. It was gospel. It had to have happened. It was true because his buddy, who he had no reason to, you know, said it. And, you know, the guy then carrying the razors and the pack and their gear, you know, as their sort of finger to the to the commander. I just I don't know that that whole thing that, that he would take it that way when he'd heard it through other people. Well, they were all mad about that. Yeah, that was like our sacrifice. You come in. It's. But everyone else was mad about it in a way that sort of bonded them together, and it was something they could talk about mm -hmm. later. You know, it was like he talked about, you know, Sarah talked about how um, they would all then talk about that mission later and sort of fondly, like, oh, I remember when that happened, remember when that happened, and Bo was not capable of doing that because he heard about this razor thing, and, like, it ruined it for him. It ruined whatever everyone else got from the experience he wasn't able to take away from the experience. And yet 
parent. Go ahead, Toby. Again, I, I always like sort of preface these things by saying, from a from a fiction point of view, if he's just a fictional character, I think the issue is that more than other people, it sort of impeaches his sense of self. That if his sense of himself is is sort of having this destiny or or, or sort of heroic self vision, that having some guy get all, all over your case because you didn't shave and being kind of dressed down, even secondhand by that. I think it is is more of a blow to that than people who are like, Jesus, you know, we just went through all this stuff and this is all he's got to say. Bitch, bitch, bitch. And then you get on with your life. Toby, you're right, because what this plays to is he's been denied his opportunity to be a hero in this incident. And because he complains about the, the, you know, the razor thing. But afterwards, he says we were all pussies. We should have killed everybody. I think this goes back to what I was saying before about to him. Everything is very black and white. And he had this drill sergeant that was his training sergeant when he came and this is exactly how he imagined that a sergeant was supposed to be that his commander was supposed to be and so he when something doesn't conform with the way that he sees it should be he can't handle it he's he's not flexible at all you know i don't typically take notes at all um, while listening to these episodes unless i need to remember somebody's name but i took one note this morning uh, as i was listening to the podcast i took the note during this part when i was re-listening to it i wrote two words holden caulfield All I could think about was this very disillusioned person with expectations sort of wandering through the world that you could look at from the outside. And now, I don't know, Catcher in the Rye, I think, is a book that I don't love the way that other people love it. And I think that I'm not atypical that way. To me, it seems like a book that, I don't know, men like more than women. I don't know. That could be a mischaracterization. But... You look at Holden Caulfield from the outside and it's like he has an expectation. Everyone's a phony because they're not conforming to his expectations. He compared everyone in the military to this one drill sergeant he had that no one could live up to this one drill sergeant. Everyone else was a disappointment. The one he really liked, yes. And that was the chip on his shoulder that he carried around. And it reminded me a little bit of that Holden Caulfield-esque chip on the shoulder. Everyone is letting me down because they're not living up to my expectations. And part of that is because when you hear an NCO say, you want to go over there to rape, pillage, and kill, and everybody else understands the gallows humor in that, and he sees it literally, again, this whole idea of maybe he's on the spectrum, Man, that just that that just makes a whole lot of sense. It pops, and I. But even I, I don't want to like beat this catcher in the rye thing to death. But even just sort of the affect of like him smoking the pipe. I think about the watch cap. You know, like the th- the thing that sort of makes me different than other people. I just kept thinking that over and over again. And Toby, you gave me open the door when you said fictional character, so I thought I would throw that in there. I want to pull back a little bit for the bigger context of the story that we skipped over a little bit and in getting into the action of the episode. As a setup for this episode and as a setup for the backdrop to what we hear about and the missions that this uh, platoon is sent on, we are told about what the military strategy is at this point in the war. And we're told about this concept, COIN. This is the hearts and minds strategy that we've talked about in other podcasts. And we hear what the soldiers think about it when they arrive and they've had all this training in weaponry and in fighting. And then they're asked to hand out coloring books and chocolate and how they know that it's not working. Now, we do get some context about that, that bigger picture of the culture of Afghanistan. And I'd love to hear what your guys take was on hearing that explanation as to what we were doing at that point in the war and this tactic that we were using. Toby, what were your thoughts on that? I thought it was a big mistake for this episode, quite honestly. I think it kind of shifted the focus away from sort of understanding Bo and his sort of cohort 
And it seemed like you spent a lot of time talking about that and sort of getting very involved in that. And then there's kind of this, it's almost like a sidebar. It's like, oh yeah, well, was this all bullshit? And then there's, you know, however long it was, eight or 10 minutes. And then it was back to Bo again. So I didn't, the information was interesting. I didn't think it was a great place to put it necessarily. You didn't think it belonged here in this part of the story. Right. You know, I kind of felt like I was taken out of the flow Mm -hmm. because I, you know, I kind of was feeling like you're getting a better sense of Bo and the people he's with and what they're going through and what their reactions are to it and how he's different from them. And then it's like you put on the brakes for a break and you talk about this like bigger picture stuff and then you go back again. And I I kind of felt like some of the momentum was lost Mm -hmm. when she did that. That being said, I mean, the the information itself was I thought was was pretty interesting in that it seems like there were people who were pretty no illusions about how things were being perceived. The idea that you know, a whole bunch of soldiers show up in an Afghan village. You're like, hey, you know, we're going to we're going to make your roads better. We're going to get you better fresh water and all this stuff. And they're like, what? You yeah. know, there's no way that's true. Why would you would do feel that? The same, I'd feel the same way if a bunch if a foreign army like walked into my neighborhood and started telling me about how they're going to make my life a lot better. That doesn't seem right to me. And giving so, your kids gifts like that's kind of creepy, really, when you yeah, think it's, about it's, it. It's 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 bizarre. What do you think, Laura? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think it did break up the flow, but I think it was also useful to put this into context to sort of, you know, we have Bo and some of the other soldiers talking about how they're feeling like we don't understand what we're doing here. We feel like there's not really like a big plan. Why this isn't what we thought we signed up for. So it did for me put in context. Well, they may have felt that way, but this is actually what they were supposed to be doing. I thought it was interesting, and it's just, just me and my I love a conspiracy thing, that the name Petraeus came in. <laughs> and I'm wondering if we're going to hear more about that as we go along. One of the things that I wondered along the lines of what you were saying, Toby, was, you know, I was wondering if maybe some of the voices we heard in this episode were some of the new people that Sarah had a chance to talk to that weren't part of the original architecture of the way the series was originally plotted out. So that maybe that explanation of coin, that passage was meant for a different place, but it fit here because we then heard Shane Cross. We heard these big people from the ground saying like, we didn't like the fact that we had to do this. And that wouldn't have made sense if we didn't know what it was we were doing. Kevin, what were your thoughts? I appreciate everybody else's thought on that. I, it didn't strike me as as the the, the pace was suddenly uh, changed. I, I hadn't really given it much thought. Uh, I suppose it could go someplace else, but I think it was good to set up the idea that a the mission is very different. How are we supposed to win this war? If if it's not by shooting and killing, then it's hearts and minds, and this is how we go about it. And then it's like, well, you know, that is that as a you know, any more effective than, you know, shooting up the town. Uh, and I think it was good to sort of set that up, that the idea is that it's it's 95% boredom, and then it's 5% terror, where you're stuck on the top of a mountain trapped inside an MRAP, and no one's going to come get you because because they're too worried about the other MRAP with the flat tire. All I could think about when I was hearing Jason Dempsey talk about what would be necessary for this to work, and he basically said... If you're going to do this, you got to do it. You got to send people there and they have to be the same people and they have to be there for years. And you ha- it has to go to the top of the chain to the bottom. Everybody 100 percent committed to the strategy. 
all I could think about was the fact that the military is just an organization, just like any other organization. You hear about this over and over again. A company commits to, say, innovation. They commit to the lean model of producing their product, or they commit to agile for developing software. But if they don't fully commit where like everyone's all in and embraces the change and listens to whatever consultants are brought in to tell all the teams what to do, it never ever works. And this is how the army as an institution is built. It will never work because you're always going to have men rotating in and out of places. You're always going to have deployments. You're never going to be able to get an army where you can send somebody someplace to live for 20 years to make these things work. It's just not the way the military is built. You know, one of the things I'm reminded of, you know, the bigger, one of the bigger issues here, and it goes to Bo's complaint and the way I think he misunderstands this has to do with discipline from the the top to the bottom. And you just something you said just reminded me of what I read in David Haberstam's book, The Fifties. And one of the people he, he profiles from the Fifties is General Matthew Ridgway, who was uh, the general who took over operations in Korea from Douglas MacArthur. And at the time he came in, the American and Allied forces were sort of in retreat. And what he recognized was that. The army he had was soft and that there was a lack of discipline and a lack of morale. And he went in from the top to the bottom and basically there were commanders that weren't going to you know, get on board or weren't effective. He, he moved them around and basically changed the culture within the army in battle. And I think Lieutenant Colonel Baker, for all of his bluster, is trying to do the same thing. He's trying to instill discipline in what seems to be a soft unit. So he even admitted that, you know, the argument at the OP mess with everybody out of uniform, he was laying it on a little bit to put on a show. But that is so important. The chain of command, discipline. I think I said this in episode one. The dust one does reflect very poorly on his commanders regardless because that soldier is supposed to be disciplined to take that order. And it's a failure of commanders that he is not a disciplined soldier. But don't good leaders and effective leaders make you want to follow exactly. them and be disciplined exactly. by them? Exactly, which is why when they they jump out of an MRAP, the first thing you, is, you don't say is what you didn't shave. Right, and I, I think that whatever his intentions were, that was poor leadership, probably. Nobody wants to follow that guy. Right, all right. So let's, let's talk about that second incident, that final incident that is the one that pushes Bo over the edge. So we hear about them going to OP Mest for the first time. They have to dig a basically have to dig a giant hole because it only fits two people and they're trying to put six guys in there. They ask for permission to change their uniform, take off their uniform a little bit so they are not digging a hole wearing all of their gear in 110, 120 degree weather. They get vague permission to, in fact, undress a little bit while they're digging this hole. And then they get into huge trouble, specifically when the Guardian photographer publishes the photo essay that uh, shows the guys digging the hole and shows Bo standing there with the pipe, you know, in their shirt sleeves and so forth. We hear from then the second-in-command, Ken Wolf, laying out why this was a problem. Can we all agree that he was maybe the scariest person in the entire history oh of the world? Oh, my God. <laughs> he is awesome. I love it when these guys swear. I think, I think the general in the message podcast should have been him. Probably. So, Toby, what did you think of the soldiers' recounting of this story and this idea that, you know, they would get in huge trouble, but that this would be the precipitating event that was the thing that causes Bo Bergdahl to walk off the base? My sense was is that he didn't realize that 
small breaches of discipline lead to bigger breaches of discipline, I think, in people's eyes. So in his mind, it's like, well, I'm not – because I'm not wearing the jacket. You're going to get all over my shit. And whereas these other things are going on that that actually put me in danger – because it seemed like an overreaction. Like it starts with not wearing your jacket and the next thing you know, it's me lie. Right. And, and Sarah, uh, Sarah calls him on that. She goes, oh, you went right there, which was a great little moment, I thought. And everybody probably knows this. This was a, a, a war crime during the Vietnam War perpetrated by U.S. soldiers. When I was hearing about this, you're going to have to bear with me for a second. This, as I'm sure will not surprise you, made me think about back in the 80s and I'm dating myself, Van Halen used to have this this rider in their contracts oh, yeah, yeah. where they'd get these M&Ms, but they'd get all the green ones taken out. And if there were green ones that were in there, they'd freak out. At the time, it was like this story about like rock excess. And these guys are like so like over the top egotistical. And I was watching an interview with somebody else. I think it might have been like Dave Grohl or something. But there was some guy who was supposed to be more down to earth. And they they brought that up as an example of like – rock egos run amok and he's like no no that's not it at all he's like the thing is is that when you're on tour and you're hit you've got a contract that's like 90 pages long and a lot of it's like instructions on how to set up the stage how to do the pyrotechnics all this stuff you're entrusting people you've never met with your safety because a lot of this stuff is really dangerous so he's like we we all put in these little ridiculous things because if those things aren't done we know they haven't read it carefully enough and we can't feel safe with what we're doing. And I think that's sort of the same way it is with discipline on these little things. It's like if I can't trust you to have the right uniform on, how can I trust you to be disciplined in things that are, are, are more important? Or as uh, Ken Wolf says, you're just sitting there waiting to be fucking killed. <laughs> Yeah. So scary. That was my favorite line. It was so scary. Do you think it makes a difference whether or not they did get the permission to take off their uniforms or should they, they just accept that even if they got permission and then got in trouble for it, that's just the way that it is? What do you think? No, that kind of bothered me that they did call ahead because they knew. It's like how they knew they were like, oh, no, we don't have our razors. Oh, no. How are we going to shave? They They knew that they weren't supposed to do this. So it's not like they were like, oh. We're just going to do this. It doesn't matter. They actually called ahead. So that that part did bother me. In hearing it, it sounded like it was more because of the fact that the Guardian was there taking pictures. Well, that was Bo's but, interpretation, right? That, that Yeah. Yeah, yeah oh. no, that, that's right. That's what Sarah said. Well, she said that they all kind of understood that there was some that he, they didn't get explicit permission to go ahead and take their 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 battle gear off. I think they said so long as that they were just digging, it should be okay. Right. Right. I think they feel, oh, it's unfair because Sergeant so-and-so said it was okay for me to do this. But, you can, but when there's a, a lieutenant colonel bumping chests with you and yelling at you, chilling you out for obviously being out of uniform. And it's the same guy who made the razor comment. You yeah. Know, that, that right. Fan, fan of the flames there. So, Laura, you actually tweeted yesterday. And, um, you know, as I've mentioned before in this podcast, Serial has really upped their digital game this season. They did actually post the Guardian photograph of Bo smoking the pipe and all the soldiers there sort of wearing half of their uniforms, digging the hole. But they also posted a video. Do you want to describe that video for our audience? And maybe we can post it on our website so everybody can watch it. Yeah, it was great. It just... You know, having listened to the episode and kind of in my head kind of been imagining what it looked like and then actually seeing these same men being interviewed and they're out, you know, they're on this kind of, you know, very desolate, rocky hill digging and they're making jokes, they're joking around. But you kind of also got the sense in listening to them that they were still kind of like, 
what the hell are we doing here? And a few of them, even at the end, there was two, two men talking and they said to each other, these people don't want us here. And I just, I found the whole thing very telling, but there was, again, there was Bo sitting there and they would, they would point out where he was. Um, so it really sort of brought to life even more the whole description and narrative that Sarah's giving us and really uh, took it to another level for me. I watched the video and the thing that really struck me is how close they were to that Afghan village. You know, we sort of heard about OP Mest in the first episode and it was on top of a hill and whatever. It is like... You get to see it for yourself. It's like like our neighbor's house. It's like going on the jury view we talked last week. (laughs) It was so close to the the people walking down the road. We're walking down a road that's, you know, as far as the road, you know, around the corner from our house. It was like they're right in the middle of this community of people. And and some commander looked at the map and said, this is a strategic point that we need to have an outpost at in order to keep these supply lines clear. And you can't exactly call it an outpost when you see it. Well, it is an outpost. It's not your forward operating base. It is. They're all outposts. They don't even have that fancy truck to sleep in when they're out there. It was really, really rustic. I mean, it's like, I, I just... It was the pit of hell. There was the burning yeah. shit and everything, you know? And did you catch the comment, the guy who was like watching the dogs? He's like, hey, do you see those dogs down there? I think they're going to hump. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. it was, so it was really, you, you know, you felt like they weren't censoring themselves, definitely. Well, they, they didn't have a lot to talk about. Right. There was not much going on there. There was no Wi-Fi hotspot at OP Mest. Well, we did get a hint looking forward to next week's episode and the coming ups for next week. And what it seems like is going to happen is we're going to come back home, perhaps, to the U.S. and get that insight into who Bo Bergdahl is. And we heard somebody, it may have been Kim Harrison's voice that we heard, I'm not sure, saying something along the lines of, but when they understand what Bo is really like, will that change their minds and and make them care about him more or believe him? Kevin, are you looking forward to getting more insight into Bo after this whole, you know, hour-long episode about Bo and who he is? Do you want to know more? I I do. And actually, this conversation really makes me curious about what we're going to find out I, it is important, and it's it's good that episode one doesn't start with him as a baby and go, gets all the way through. I think that that's probably the right way to structure it. And and now we're, yeah, we're, we're kind of reeling backwards. You know, I talked a couple episodes ago about how his journey mirrors the monomythic journey when you have the, the hero who goes into the unknown. And again, I say I don't mean hero like with a medal, but I mean in the literary sense. And it's tough for everything to line up because it's nonfiction. But what we got today was what was an important part of the beginning of the journey, which was the precipitating factor. What was the call to action to get him on this journey. And it, before, we just said, it's a MacGuffin. It's a, he had problems with his commanders. And then we found out all about this, and this is, you know, this is his reason for heeding the call. First, he's resisting the call, and now he's heeding the call to go do something. This is like Uncle Owen's home being burned down in Star Wars. Uh, yeah, yeah, some, something like that. You know? I, I thought I used a reference that you would understand there. Uh, it, it was more like in Die Hard where he, like, he didn't want to like get involved in the fight, and then Mr. Takagi got killed by Hans Gruber. No, no. <laughs> Hey, we had a Van Halen reference. We, <laughs> we, we may as well go there, too. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Uh, Toby, what do you think? Do you want to learn more about who Bo Bergdahl is after hearing this episode and, and some of the narrative issues that you had with it? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I think one of the things we didn't even talk about was he starts to get worried that they're going to be sent on a suicide mission to, like, cover up for his CO, like, hates them so much or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to hear more. I just think that the way he sort of perceives himself and what's going on around him 
and his place in the world, uh, you know, from a fiction writer standpoint is is really interesting. So, Laura, when, when you heard that next week's episode was going to be about this deeper look into Bo and who he is, are you looking forward to learning more and hearing more? I am, um, especially after the conversation we've had today. Um, I, I definitely have an interest in sort of mental health issues, and I've always sort of been curious to know what if any diagnosis was here. I've been wondering this since the beginning. And when we heard about him being, you know, discharged as unfit for the military and then being let in on the waiver, I'm really curious to know more about his homeschooling upbringing and sort of where he came from. He had some very, like I said before, interesting hobbies in high school. And, and I'd like to know a little bit more about him and how hopefully that's going to put this into context, what we learned this week. So, Kevin, I'd like to grade the episode. I'm going to ask all of you to grade the episode, but I'm going to start with you. On a letter grade scale, what grade do you give season two, episode six, five o'clock shadow of Serial? I'm going to give it an A minus. First of all, any episode with Ken Wolf is uh, <laughs> an awesome piece of uh, tape. But just, you know, that 15 minute stretch alone talking about was it on, on Juan? What was the name of the, 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 the place they were going? That whole thing in the MRAPs. That was, I mean, that in and of itself could have been a great piece on This American Life. It was so compelling, and it is providing the context that we finally need to see more of of the picture. Laura, what about you? What what grade do you give this episode of Serial? Uh, I'm going to go with B plus. I, I like I said last week was hoping for like some big great expose as to why he walked off, and um, you know I'm like oh, okay, I understand this is the reason, but I was hoping for something a little bit more um, exciting, I guess. But you know I did like this episode. I loved hearing from the different men in his unit. Really liked hearing a little bit more like Ken Wolf. Um, his other great comment of the week was no more effing Lawrence of Arabia shit. I mm-hmm. loved that line. <laughs> He was quite the character that Ken Wolf. Yes, B, B plus. I don't know. Maybe I just have a thing for swearing. I don't know. What about you, Toby? You know, in most ways, I at least found this the most interesting of all the episodes so far. I'd give it an A for effort and a B plus for execution. Because of that interruption of the story. Is that what the issue is? Yeah, I think so. And, and there's just other pieces. But for the most part, you know, 90% of it was just, I, I thought, really engaging. And when it was over, I was like, oh, wow, i got to wait two weeks now. That's the magical feeling. We've gotten yep. it back, I think, in this season. I think I think Stella has her groove back as far as Serial goes. I'm also going to give this episode, I don't know, I want to say an A-. I really loved last week's episode so much. I liked this week's episode a lot. I thought the storytelling was compelling. I loved the MRAPs detail. I loved all the military stuff, but I am looking forward to next week too. You know, maybe I'm going to be a little bit more of a critical grader now that I we've gotten a little further into this and we've had like suddenly like some real excellence here and something new that we weren't expecting. All right. Well, I think it's time to move on to the next part of the episode, a little something I like to call the crime of the week. Great story fell across my desk today. It turns out that a woman in Melbourne, Australia, crashed her own funeral, shocking her husband and the father of her eight children. Now, he thought she was dead because he had just paid some hitmen $7,000 to kill her. It all went down when Noella Rakundo returned to her native Burundi for her stepmother's funeral. While there, she was kidnapped at gunpoint by three hitmen who demanded to know why her husband wanted her dead. She was shocked and said, you're lying. The proof then came when she heard her husband on a speakerphone giving them the final order to kill her. Ugh. 
In an amazing twist, these highly principled hitmen said they don't kill women. They weren't interested. They ended up lying to the husband, taking the money, giving Noella a ride to safety. She then worked with the embassy and got back to Australia in time for her own funeral. And then just as her husband was saying goodbye to the guests at her funeral, walked in and said, hey, honey, I'm alive. So here is what I would like to know. If... Your spouse hired hitmen to kill you, and you were able to get away because the hitmen were highly principled. Is this how it would go down? Kevin, what do you think? Uh, I think I would show up in a white suit, a black colonel tie, and a big white mustache like Mark Twain and say, rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. And then mic drop you, woman. Laura, what do you think of how this woman handled this situation? Is this how you would do it? I love how she handled this. I love that she had all these people helping her along the way, the hitmen with consciences, uh, the pastor who helped her out. You know, I definitely am somebody who gets riled up about things when people are wronged, and I would march right in there. I might have made a bit more of a spectacle. You know, maybe I would have come up out of the casket or something. (laughs) (laughs) Toby, what do you think of how this situation was handled? Does it ring true with you? Is this what you would do? Well, first of all, I love the fact that they gave, didn't they give her a receipt for the money? (laughs) (laughs) Two more kidnappings and your third is free. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. Uh, What would I do? Since Kevin's already taken the Mark Twain dressing up thing. I guess I would probably like to sneak in a little bit late and just sit down next to somebody and just wait for somebody to finally notice that I was there. And uh, <laughs> and start weeping really loudly. Let's be honest, Toby. You, you just want to hear all the nice things people would say about you at your own funeral, don't you? <laughs> well, I mean, that would be before I went in. I'd be sitting on the other side of the door. Because nobody says it to him now. Right, <laughs> if only Toby were here. We should probably end things on that note. Toby Ball, if our listeners want to contact you on Twitter, get you to tweet them back, how can they find you there? At Toby Ball NH. And Laura Bricker, how can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker, and it's L-A-R-A. And Kevin, are you interested in tweeting with our listeners? No, I have to go home and shave. (laughs) Uh, But once I'm done, I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our little show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions or comments you want us to respond to, send us a tweet or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search for Crime Writers on Serial. You can also send an email with your questions and comments to crimewriterson at gmail.com. And if you love the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps keep us on the charts so others can find us. Our show's theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This podcast was recorded in the studios at New Hampshire Public Radio. You can find out more about all the crime writers at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, do some shopping with that Amazon link. Check out our Buy Our Books page, buy Darkheart. It's coming out in March. Or make a PayPal donation to support the show. On behalf of all the crime writers, thank you so much for listening. We will catch you later. Who would you rather hear swear for five minutes, Ken Wolf or Ken Kratz? Oh, God, I can't hear Ken Kratz's voice ever again. Please, no. Even That's like he... a nightmare. <laughs> Put those guys in a room together. See what... Oh, I would like to see Ken Wolf take on Ken Kratz. That's what I'll say. There's just somebody there waiting to get fucking killed. <laughs> Okay, well, I think it's time to move on to my favorite part of the... (laughs) Oh, I hate you all. Okay, I love you all. All right. 